Welcome to the Words of Grace podcast, where we discuss faith journeys, fellowship and stories from across the Diocese of Sheffield. Each week we will feature guests from a broad range of backgrounds and traditions within the Church of England. Our mission is to delve deeper into matters of faith and to ask each guest what has drawn them to Christianity. I'm Ben Fern and I'm here with my colleague and co-host, Paul Sheridan. You okay, Ben? Yeah, very well, thanks. Yeah. Um, we've had some good news, more good news on listener figures. We're now up to 1,400 or over 1,400 listeners. That's fantastic. Not just in the UK, but across the globe, according to the um, the ACAST stats. That's the group that uh, hosts this podcast. So we, you sent me a map the other day with the sort of world view of where we're at. There's some, there's some interesting countries that are downloading us at the moment, aren't there? Uh, Kazakhstan. Big in Kazakhstan, I hear. Yeah, very much friends of the podcast. Very much. Kazakhstan as a nation is a very much friend yeah. of the podcast. United States of America, of which, as we'll discover shortly, is very um, appropriate. Very appropriate. Excellent. There we go. <laughs> that wasn't me doing an American accident. Nor me, no. Uh, Canada. Ooh. Argentina. Argentina. Yeah. Interesting. We've got, we, when we did our sort of um, family tree, Becca's side of the family's got a lot of family in Argentina, so I wonder if they're reaching out to us. There we go. Mm. Yeah. Well, maybe not. And also, we're getting closer to Christmas. We are. So Ben and I are going for a coffee after this to uh, discuss our Christmas special, which um, is going to be um, full of tinsel, I think, isn't it? Definitely, and a harp. And a harp, and a few Kermit impressions, I suspect. Yes, although I might chicken out that on the day, but in the spirit I need to make sure I deliver on that. But we are out and about today, Ben in uh, a beautiful house in Sheffield. On location. On location. Our open second, broadcast. Open, second OB. Yeah. So I'm going to do the bio and um, introduce, introduce our guest. Our esteemed guest, yeah. Yeah. So our guest today is Daniel McGuinness. Daniel was born in Houston, Texas and studied, go on, there's a microphone just, movement. I've then. got to tell you, Paul, it's not Houston, it's Houston. Okay. Houston, Texas. Daniel McGuinness. We have a problem. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to go. I could just see the little bubble above your head. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you, you should know how it's pronounced simply from that very famous movie reference. Yes. Houston, we have a problem. Okay, here we go. I suspect Houston is the Scottish pronunciation. I think it's the British pronunciation. <laughs> Here we go. <coughs> Daniel McGuinness. Daniel McGuinness was born in Houston. No, go on. Houston. Houston, Texas. Should we swap? <laughs> Should I get a Daniel to do his phone bio? That might be because I'm going to do the rest of this wrong now. And he studied history and religious studies as an undergraduate at Baylor University in America. Is it pronounced Baylor? Baylor. <laughs> he then. He then went on to earn an MA and PhD in Biblical Studies from Sheffield University. Is it pronounced Sheffield? You've got that one right. Fantastic. Focusing on first century Greco-Roman culture and the Book of Acts, which we will come back to later. Undoubtedly, with 40 Minutes with Daniel, we will mention the Book of Acts. He has a background in leading student ministry and planted a church in Sheffield in 2005, which he led and developed for the next eight years. After that, he founded the Leeds School of Theology, and was involved in the leadership of St. Barnabas Theological Centre. Since 2017, uh, he was Vice Principal of St. Hill College, focused primarily on St. Hill Sheffield. Daniel enjoys walking in the Peace District, lifting weights, and playing with Lily, his cat. And Ben has already spoken to Lily the cat. In April 2023, he became Principal of St. Hill College and oversees St. Hill Sheffield. 
Welcome to Words of Grace, Daniel. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. I haven't seen you since you became principal of St. Hills, I don't think. I haven't seen you for a little while. So shall we kick off there? Just tell us a little bit about St. Hills, its role. Um, it's a very important place in the city and in, and in sort of spiritual formation. We've already had some guests that lecture there. So give us an overview of that and then perhaps moving into your role there. Sure. St. Hild is, um, and it's actually St. Hild, not St. Hilds. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this wow, is the last time I'm going to correct you. I'll have to get a replacement co-host, I think. Of this. <laughs> um, uh, that's just a small pet peeve. St. Hild College is... Um, is, is the theological college for Yorkshire, uh, for the Church of England. Um, we have, well, we have four centers now. We have one in Sheffield, one in Murfield, which is where our offices are based, one online, and then we've just opened one in Lincoln. So we're actually expanding outside of Yorkshire uh, and into the southern province uh, in Lincoln there. And so we have about 170 students across the college, um, we do ordination training uh, for many of those students. We also do Baptist ordination that training as well and have a lot of uh, independent students of various kind of denominations and church connections too. And your role as principal, what, is, what does that entail? <laughs> well, I, to be honest, I'm still learning exactly what that entails because I only became principal Easter of this year. Uh, I was vice principal before that for uh, quite a number of years. Um, it is essentially leading the college in terms of strategy, in terms of vision, in terms of uh, managing our, our growing staff team um, and uh, liaising with all of the various governance of the college. So it's quite a, quite a large remit. Uh, I'm enjoying it. It is a steep learning curve for me as well. And if you could just give a sense of the breadth of biblical studies you cover then. So what, we were mentioning the book of Acts there, but I imagine it goes way beyond that as well. Just give me a sense of other areas that you look at. Yeah, so I mean, so it's not just biblical studies, actually. It's, um, but, but within biblical studies, of course, it's Old and New Testament and a lot about um, um, reception history and um, how all that has been received over the years, but we also teach in areas of uh, mission and ministry. We teach in areas of Christian tradition, which is really doctrine and um, a church history, that sort of thing, and then theological reflection as well. So it's accredited by Durham University. All of our awards are Durham Common Awards. And so it's a fantastic place. If you have listeners in the local area who are interested in theological study, it is an amazing resource right on the doorstep um, to do some theological study. And that can be anything from picking up a module to a foundation award to a master's degree and uh, everything in between. One of the things we've sort of learned from, we've had Amy Hall on the podcast and Dan Christian, and they've given a good insight into that sort of area. And I've also mentioned the importance of Greek because, of course, that's the language the New Testament was written in. Given the scope of that, what's the starting point when you look at the New Testament with that sort of Greek background? Oh, here we go. Greek is another moment. This will go. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I love New Testament Greek. I'd like to say I taught Amy New Testament Greek for the very first time in a module many years ago. And, and Amy has just gone on to become a wonderful uh, Greek teacher in her own right, and one of our main Greek teachers at the college. Um, 
um, it is so empowering to read scripture in its original language, to not have to rely on an interpreter, um, because every time you translate from one language to the other, there is a degree of interpretation that's happening. So, of course, it's not just Greek. I mean, Dan teaches Hebrew for us, and um, which, of course, is the original language of the Old Testament. But um, not all of our students do that, and please don't be intimidated if you're listening. You don't need to do that, or certainly you don't need to start there. But we have a lot of students who come to us wanting to engage more deeply with Scripture and feeling like learning one of those languages, or both, will help them to really dig into the detail of it. And it is a fantastic privilege. Yeah, but two of my children have been to St. Hilde at different stages. Thea and Jonah have both been through St. Hilde and have... It's radically affected the way they view their own faith, the way they view their faith journey, and their their formation has been really influenced by that college. So it's been fantastic for our family. Yeah, and just to say, um, I, I really appreciate you saying that. It isn't just an academic environment. It's a formational environment. Yeah. I mean, the whole emphasis on community, learning in community, formation in Christlikeness and community, uh, we run something called a missional leadership program. So it's a very holistic way of developing uh, really the ministers of the future. And I guess the thing I want to say is what gets me out of bed in the morning is the idea that what we're doing in training and formation is equipping and releasing the the leaders of tomorrow's church who you know, my favorite thing to do is watch our alumni go on to do all sorts of amazing things all over Yorkshire and beyond. I mean, some of them are uh, missionaries in Africa or different places now. And just to see the ways that God uses them is such a privilege and an honor. And uh, it just gives meaning to, you know, all the day in and day out things that we do as a college to see our students um, going on to serve God and serve God's kingdom in lots of ways. And I know it's a really busy time for you as well because you're just going through a process of ordination yourself. And, and with your background, having you know, pastored a church, been involved around church for a long time, which we'll come back to, all that depth of theological study, what led you at this point to now being going sort of back in again to, to go through that, uh, that time of ordination and that time of discernment? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. There aren't many college principals who are also getting ordained at the same time. It's It's been, of course, a long journey. I, I was ordained in another denomination previously. Um, I planted and led a church and, and was a, a student minister for, for many years before that as well, um, which we may talk about more. But um, it's interesting. I'm in, a, I'm in a transition time. Both of my children are now off at university. We are empty nesters, my wife and I. I'm really thinking about second half of life questions. I'm really thinking about what do I do? Um, um, uh, Richard Rohr talks about first half of life, you build the container. It's sort of kind of how people see you from the outside. Second half of life is you fill, fill the container. It's about meaning and purpose. And I really feel that God's asking me to serve his church to really devote myself to serving the church. And part of that, especially as I have a little more time with uh, kids not in the house anymore, is around being ordained, not to become a vicar or a, a parish uh, a church leader. I have this calling to being a scholar priest. So I'll continue in, in the academic world. I'll continue to teach and to train and to form uh, leaders theologically. But 
our community, our, our ordinary community is a Eucharistic community. We, we are gathered around the Eucharist and um, we are forming uh, the priests of tomorrow. And so it makes a lot of sense for me to be a priest, but also there's a priestly aspect of my own sense of calling. And I think over the next 20, 30 years, however long that will last and whatever that looks like, I want to be both a scholar and a priest in the way that I engage with serving God's church. I think it's really interesting you said that. I know there's someone in my church who's recently become an empty nester himself. So both his kids are now have gone to university. And I sort of asked the cheesy question of, oh, is it a punch the air moment because you've got a house to yourself? Um, but no, he, he said it is, it is strange and sort of sad in a way. So I think given that, did you have to think of, did you have to reflect a lot on this decision sort of prayerfully before you decided to go down this route? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you'll know the Church of England doesn't do this quickly. <laughs> um, there's been a two-year discernment process and lots of... I, I've really engaged thoroughly with that whole process. And, and I've had a sense of this for even multiple years before that. This is not in any way connected really to my role as principal of the college. It's a separate sense of calling from God that emerged, you know, quite long before that transition happened. Um and, and yes, lots of prayer, lots of discernment, lots of key conversations with people. Um, thankfully, uh, uh, the diocese, and shout out to Bishop Sophie, our sponsoring bishop, has been really supportive and understanding. I'm a very strange ordination candidate. There, I don't think the diocese has ever had anyone just quite like me in terms of my own background. And so they've made the actual training process a, a, an abbreviated one year, very light touch, more about Anglican formation um, than you know any academic study or anything like that. And I'm really grateful for that because it means I can do it alongside what is a very busy uh, full-time uh, leadership role. Um, so yeah, it's, it's actually really sharpened my own clarity around calling and God's purpose for me. And also, I think is setting up some exciting things for the future and for how uh, God may want to position me and, and use me within his church. We wish you all the best for that calling. It sounds very exciting. You're clearly uh, very passionate about it. You mentioned calling there. I'm quite interested to know about your calling to the UK and to Sheffield. When yeah. did you first hear that calling? Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, could I say a little about my childhood as a kind of precursor to that? Please or, um... do. We love, we love a childhood story, okay. yes. So, yeah, so I grew up in Houston. Paul, say it with me. Houston. Oh, excellent. You're getting there. This is so weird. I'm always the one being corrected for the way I pronounce things, like literally constantly. So it's quite strange to be the one doing the correcting. It's like aluminium. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. Oregano. Say oregano. <laughs> oregano, yeah. I've picked up most of those over uh, 19 years almost of being here. So I grew up in Houston at a church called Church of the Redeemer, which was an Episcopalian church. Some of your listeners may have heard of the Fisher Folk or Graham and Betty Polkingham. They are. Uh, it was a. It was a really unique place uh, where this outpouring of the Spirit happened in the '60s and the '70s, and so it was this kind of high church, very liturgical. You know, I was an acolyte growing up, but also this very um, spirit-filled, rich worship, a really unique combination. And my first 18 years were in this church, and it really put something deep in me, both about um, 
uh, Anglicanism, uh, but also about that sort of expression of faith. And that was that was just wonderful. I can talk more about that if you want to. But I went to uni and then joined a large Baptist church because that just seemed like the right uh, way to go for me. And when I graduated, uh, I got married shortly after and soon became a student pastor within that church. And this was a large, so we're talking a student ministry of seven to 800 students. So it's kind of a different scale in some ways. And um, part of that role was taking students on overseas mission trips. And I, we did that, my wife and I did that at least twice a year. And we had a, a couple of very good friends, one in Bedford, England, and one in uh, the north on the north coast of Scotland, uh, Macduff and Banff, Scotland. And so we we learned pretty quickly that it was a great place to take students on mission trips because we had the language, we could just engage well. And so for about five or six years, I was bringing mission teams, doing ministry here regularly, and just really fell in love with the place. And along the way. God spoke to both of us very clearly. I mean, we always knew we would plant a church. We would be church planters. I had originally thought um, uh, Central Asia or the Muslim world, and I had done a number of um, mission, mission experiences there as well. But it just became clear it was England, which was a surprise to me at first. I have to say it wasn't a surprise to my wife. She had always said that, and I had dismissed it for a long time, which is never a good thing to do in a marriage. Learned that lesson now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I've totally learned that lesson now. Jeannie, when she, when she hears God about something, she is always right. Um, so all that culminated in us moving here in 2005 uh, to plant a church in Sheffield. And we were looking for a, what we called a normal city with a big student population, a big international population, and real issues of poverty that we could that we could work with, and 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 Sheffield just ticked all those boxes. It was just a perfect place, and so that's originally why we moved here. And then there was a second reason. There was a lady named Loved Alexander in the uh, Sheffield University Biblical Studies department who I had known, who was kind of a world specialist in the Book of Acts, probably number two most famous. Acts scholar. And I met with her multiple times and I basically said to her, look, you know, this is what I'd like to do in terms of a PhD. Would you supervise that? And she said, yes. And so it was a dream to work with her over the next few years. So it was a twofold call. The church plant was the main thing and, and we did that. And that church is still yeah, going well, going strong today. But also I did my, my master's and PhD under Love Day. And um, just getting an, uh, an hour a month with her was worth the whole package. I can say two things about her. She has a photographic memory. She has the entire Greek New Testament memorized and can literally quote the verse to you if you ask her for it. And she's fluent in 10 languages. And she's a classically trained scholar. So, I mean, she's a dying breed of biblical scholar. And just getting to hang out with her uh, was a, a, a life-changing experience for me and really kind of set my life on the trajectory uh, academically that, that I'm still on today. So that's how I came to England and to Sheffield. And we've lived in the same place um, that whole time. So that was nearly 19 years ago. So at that point, is that when you really, really, you decided to fall in love with the Book of Acts? Did the Book of Acts leap out at you? And it, you, what was that process? Because I know you've written about it. Yeah. You have a huge tome. 
yeah. available around the Book of Acts from Daniel McGuinness. But what was it that first really drew you to that? Was it then, before then, what? Yeah, so I'd say the Book of Acts has been my great love most of my life. I, I, I don't know exactly when I first got so hooked on the Book of Acts, but certainly as a student, the stories of mission, of church planting, of the supernatural, the miraculous, just had me hooked. And um, I remember when I was a uh, when I was a student pastor, a student leader, um, one of my mentors challenged me. He said, you know, read through the book of Acts very thoroughly and write down everything it's saying about mission. Wow. Yeah, which, which <laughs> I realized you, the whole thing you? is, well, yeah, that, that took weeks and months, I'm sure. And, and actually, in some ways, I think that... And, and I was part of a learning community that sort of did that together. And so that was a really rich formational experience for me. And then as I got more serious about, uh, you know, kind of formally studying it, my questions were still around, what is Luke really doing and saying in this amazing set of stories we call the Book of Acts? And what could we do with them today as a church? Uh, uh, and, um, you know, I, I, I honestly, I'm more passionate and intrigued by those questions today than I was then. I, 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 I think I can spend a lifetime kind of exploring those kinds of questions, but yeah, I've done some writing. In fact, I'm, I'm about to finish a, a, another book, uh, which is along those lines. So yeah, it's something I'm really, really interested in. One of the things I find fascinating about Acts as, as well is, uh, Paul's visit to Athens, so he speaks from the Areopagus. I think I mentioned this on Amy's podcast. I went to Athens January this year and went to where it said he spoke to the Athenians and the passage from Acts is inscribed into the sort of mountain as you're overlooking Athens. But I think it took about 500 years for it to become the dominant religion, Christianity in Greece or certainly in Athens. But initially he didn't get a good reception. It's amazing to think from those small beginnings where most people were very skeptical about what he said, obviously grew and grew. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, Scholars obsess with the Athens experience. It is the most, I don't know if you knew this, it's the most studied passage in all of Acts because it's such an amazing contextual sermon. You know, you've got the altar to the unknown gods. You've got, he's quoting these local philosophers. But interestingly, let's see if I can say this quickly. His response is actually one of the lowest responses of any place he goes in Acts. We're not even sure that there was a church planted. It seems like a handful of people at most. And where does he go next? He goes to Corinth next. And if you remember when he's writing to the Corinthians, uh, he says, um, um, this is chapter one, I believe, of two Corinthians. He says, I did not come to you with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith would not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. So you can almost hear him processing, okay, in Athens, I went with the wise and the persuasive words. I mean, he's this master philosopher, you know, he's very kind of clever in the way that he presents the message of Jesus. The response is very minimal. Ironically, even though everybody loves studying the passage, in Corinth, he goes with the power of God, um, with a sense of real kind of, you know, humility and um, not taking himself too seriously, you could say. 
And the response, and of course, we know the Corinthian church is one of the very key early Pauline churches. So I'm really interested. I mean, I love the Athens sermon, but if you look at the fruit, um, maybe there's a lesson that we need to study a little less the kind of rhetoric of Paul and a little more the way he he uses signs and wonders and miracles to 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 draw people to Christ. I think that is really fascinating. I always always think as well it's quite funny that you know Greek mythology is very varied and vivid and powerful, but in that passage in Acts, they sort of draw the line of the resurrection. That's where the skepticism comes in, which I find quite yes yeah. yeah, strange response. But yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. So so I I am. Um, um, is it okay if I promo my book <laughs> and, and mention it? One hundred percent. We're monetizing this moment as well. Paid <laughs> advert. Yeah. yeah. Could you just give us the name of the publisher? We'll just check that. Um, so my book is called Missional Acts: Rhetorical Narrative in the Acts of the Apostles, and um, basically what I'm doing in that it's a big book, as you said, Paul. Um, is I'm trying to engage with, A, what I think Luke is doing in Acts, because it is a rhetorical piece of work. He's wanting to influence his readers. He's wanting to kind of uh, achieve a, a response. But B, then how do we engage with all of this missional context and, uh, content? And I've broken it into um, missional stimuli, which is the why. In other words, why do we do this? It's things like uh, the, the, the word of God uh, advancing, the power of the Holy Spirit, the kind of universal welcome, um, radical discipleship. The second area is missional structures. So that's things like house churches and uh, oikos, which is household networks in the ancient world. The third is missional strategies. That's where I look really in depth at Paul's missionary journeys, because I actually think Paul doesn't have a clue what he's going to do when the Spirit says to he and Barnabas, set apart for me, uh, you know, in, in, at, at Antioch. I think he learns as he goes. And he, uh, you know, that culminates in Corinth and then in Ephesus, of course, which is his last main place. So I'm really interested in what he learns and how Luke structures that. And then the final section is missional suffering, which is the, uh, everybody's, favorite part of the book, uh, but it, it, it is actually quite important because suffering is a huge theme of Acts, and I think we as a church need a theology that has space for suffering in it, and we can learn something from how Luke seems to be equipping his readers to deal with opposition and suffering that they may encounter and face. So if anybody wants to get hold of it, you can find it on Amazon or, or loads of other places, Missional Acts. Um, and then I, I'm just about to release a Grove booklet, which is a kind of much shorter version of some of the core content. So I'd like to have a read of that. Thank you, Daniel. Um, given how much goes on in Acts, and it is such an important book, I'm perhaps doing a disservice to people in apologies if I am, but from a sort of pop culture sense, obviously the, the, um, the birth of Jesus has obviously been covered a lot in film, television, obviously the death and resurrection of Jesus has. I would argue, and again, I hope I'm not doing anyone down, Acts perhaps hasn't been covered in the same way. I was wondering, do you think there's a particular reason for that? That's really interesting. I mean, I've always thought it would make a fantastic Hollywood blockbuster. I mean, you've got like shipwrecks and storms and snake bites and all these power encounters and dramatic miracles and, um, you know, Paul confronting various people in all these, uh, you know, dramatic ways. Um, 
I think part of the reason perhaps why is that it is, um, well, it's much harder to care. Like, how would you capture Pentecost on film? You know, how would you actually do um, tongues of fire? And uh, I mean, people have tried. There have been a few uh, representations of that or, or um, you know, the, the, the sound of rushing wind. I think um, it maybe it doesn't lend itself to the kind of linear film story in quite the same way. But I agree with you. Part of our problem as a church when it comes to acts is over familiarity. We know these stories so well that we we forget how beautiful and dramatic and mysterious they actually are. And so one of the things I when I teach on acts, which I teach on acts all the time in lots of places, I try to say to people, let's engage with it as if for the first time. And let's appreciate, even from just a literary perspective, the drama of this story is really incredible. And um, um, I, I think I think there is a place where a film could could do something with that. And with the drama and everything that you love about the book of Acts, bringing that into uh, an organisation, if I can use that word, if it's not derogatory, of the Church of England, yeah. which has established tradition the way we do stuff all the stuff that we would look at the church of england think how do you mix that you're coming you're going to be coming into the church of england formally yourself you're teaching the next generation of 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 church of england priests and vicars and curates how are you bringing that dynamism of the mission journey into an, an existing culture and tradition yeah, that's a really huge question. Yeah, and, and, and uh, we haven't, you know, and I, I, even as I'm saying it, I'm thinking, Paul, that's a ridiculous question. That's well, a series, but just a little brief yeah, thought on that. Yeah, no, it, it's an important question. And it's one, of course, that I wrestle with a lot. Um, um, I've been part of the Church of England for 10 years now as a sort of, uh, you know, member and parishioner. Um, and um, I, I do think you're right, um, so many things about the first century context of that earliest church and our uh, 21st century context in, in you know, Western Europe it are very different. And I think that's the, the, the kind of contextualization that's required to make that jump is really interesting to me. Um, but I'm nervous that the institution just can easily dismiss so much that I think Acts is wanting to challenge us with because, well, we're different and things work different now. And I'm worried that if we do that too quickly, we miss what is really powerful and beautiful about those stories that really could be for today. Um, you know, so, I mean, there's so many examples. Um, Let's take miracles and healings. A lot of people will read that story and say, well, yeah, but they lived in a culture where that was just more common. And of course, that doesn't really happen today. I really want to ask the question, really? Can, can we just so quickly dismiss what feels like almost normal Christianity, this expectation that when you pray for people, God will actually do dramatic, wonderful things in their lives, whether that's a physical healing or a, a sense of a release from captivity or, you know, whatever it is. That's where acts can provoke us in a helpful way to go, okay, maybe there is more. Maybe the Holy Spirit is still uh, the same spirit today, 
maybe he he's still wanting to do the same things and um, maybe what 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 God is wanting to expand is my own faith and my own expectation when I pray for people. I mean, that's one small example, and maybe that's a very controversial example. I don't know. But um, there are so many ways that I think the provocation of that story is needed in the cultural moment we find ourselves in as a church. Um, and, and, and one more thought about that. I mean, I could go on and on, but... It's very interesting. Acts really fell out of favor during Christendom because Acts is a story of a church on the margins. It's a story of a church that's kind of prophetically ministering as a minority voice to a majority culture. But guess what? More and more of that is exactly where we find ourselves today. And interestingly, the church is rediscovering the powerful uh truths and stories of that book as a kind of uh, 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 guidance for negotiating where we are culturally today. So I actually think the relevance of those stories has increased massively in the last kind of 100, 200 years after a time when honestly it was largely ignored within kind of Western European Christianity. So I think it's very important and very strategic for our future as a missional church. I think the challenge as well is communicating that to a, a non-Christian audience. I think amongst non-Christians, I think there'll be a cultural awareness about the birth, death, resurrection of Jesus, the story of that. But perhaps some would think that's where the story ends and actually not really knowing about Acts. Do you think there's the sort of relatable way we can communicate what happens in Acts to that sort of audience? Especially given that, you know, Christmas and Easter are always big times in the church calendar. Yeah. That's the opportunity to talk about those huge events in the Bible. But yeah. can we do the same for Acts? Well, it's interesting. I mean, as someone who really love act, loves Acts, I would say Pentecost as a pivot point is almost as significant as the death and resurrection of Jesus, because this is the moment where, uh, you know, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is very clearly the soul bearer of the spirit. Jesus is the one who has the spirit. But uh, as he promises in Acts 1-8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. And then, of course, Pentecost happens. We do celebrate Pentecost in the church calendar and the church year. But the whole thing about Acts, it, it, that's when the power of the Spirit comes to every believer. Uh, it's the democratization of the, the, the gifts and the power and the fruit of the Spirit into the life of the church. And of course, it's interesting, Acts 2, that story, the culmination of it, if you read it closely, isn't even um, speaking in different languages, you know, spiritual preaching, mass uh, salvations, baptisms. It's the creation of that new church. It's Acts 2, 42 through 47. It's that beautiful early Jerusalem community who devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, of fellowship, and to prayer, who saw signs and wonders. And that is the theme throughout the book. When the Spirit comes, the church is birthed or protected or nurtured or furthered. And it's very interesting. The end of the book of Acts isn't really an end. If you read to the end, and scholars have been vexed by this forever, why does it just end? You know, it's talked about Paul seeing Caesar multiple times. We don't even know if Paul gets out of house arrest in Rome. It just sort of ends kind of randomly. A lot of people thought maybe there's a third, uh, you know, a third part coming, or maybe maybe Luke wrote this right at that moment. 
I think Luke's being quite intentional there. The book doesn't end because that missional story doesn't end. Rome is not the ends of the earth that that Jesus and many others have, 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 have predicted. And so when you get to the end of this book, it's almost as if it's saying, now it's over to you, readers. And every generation has received that kind of uh, inheritance of the, these are the roots, these are the foundations. It's your turn now. It's your turn to continue the story. You know, we live in Acts 29, some people say. So that would be the way I would talk about it to wider culture. I'd say, you know, the, 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 the Jesus story of birth, ministry, teaching, healing, death, resurrection, ascension, which is actually in Acts, by the way, and then the but that story doesn't end there because literally what it goes to is the outpouring of the spirit, the empowerment of the church for mission and ministry. And of course, here we are today sitting in this room almost 2000 years later, literally because that happened. I mean, it's, you know, even from a historical perspective that has changed the world more than any other kind of historical event has, but it's not, it's not just the life of Jesus. It's the fact that the spirit was given to the church and this mission was carried on from there. So that's how I'd talk about it. And that's why I'm so passionate about it because I think it's our turn now, like in our generation, what do we do with this? Uh, and, and I think it's a, uh, the church is struggling. It's a crucial question for the church to be wrestling with and asking today. There's a good sermon in there, I think, Declan. <laughs> I think I might have just preached it. Sorry, I just <laughs> no, no. I went on a bit long. No, no, no. no you I didn't. meant that. I meant that as a compliment because that was that was fascinating. And actually, what I asked was a very difficult question. But you answered it very well, and I think that is a very good way that we can communicate that to others. At the heart of some of the stuff you've done is I'm looking for the phrase here, like the democratization of theology. Mm. So you, I know, have wanted to get theology out there, out of just dusty tomes, out of sort of um, what about this sort of stuff, but to the church in general. Um, so that's come about from your teaching, but also like Leeds School of Theology. Just tell us how that journey came from being a student pastor to actually say, I need to, you're nodding because I think that's right. You needed to get theology out there. Yeah, no, that's a huge passion of mine as a kind of scholar theologian. Um, a, I think theology, our theology needs to be practical. It needs to uh, impact our lives. And, and B, um, the big observation that I made, I, I realized how important kind of strong, healthy the Christian theology is, but I saw that um, in this nation in particular, it is either the kind of very high level, very expensive university course, you know, very hard to access, you know, um, you've got to devote years of your life to it, or it is the kind of local Sunday school church training thing. Both of those are fantastic, but there's a massive gap in the middle. And I started the lead school theology, which you were a student on, uh, Paul, and um, so you, you know that pretty well. Um, I started that as a way to bridge that gap. It was inexpensive, it was accessible, it was weekends and evenings for full-time busy working people. And it was trying to teach and do theology in a way that people could actually connect with and engage with that was real and relevant to their lives. And that's been a, a, a wonderful success. I mean, when I began that, that was in 2013, I 
I had uh, I had no idea what that would go on to become and to be. And I, I'm I still teach on that. I'm no longer on that staff team anymore. But there's a great uh, team, uh, including one of your sons who who helped to run that um, today. And and um, so yes, my passion has always been getting quality, high level theology into the hearts and minds of your typical Christian in a, in a, in a normal church. And I, I bring that in many ways to St. Hilde as well. St. Hilde has its own history and kind of charism or unique gift to offer. And of course, we have to do a number of things because we're training priests and doing or ordination formation. But at the end of the day, I always have that question, did, the, did that teaching session really hit people's lives in a way that they can do something with it? Or was it just a bunch of kind of head knowledge and theory? Um, um, knowledge, Paul, Paul says, uh, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so if our theology isn't helping us love better, we've got something wrong. And actually, there are a lot of people with a lot of knowledge who that can very easily lead to a sort of prideful arrogance, you know, a kind of, oh, I know more than you or whatever. That's not the kind of theology the church needs. It's the kind that leads us to uh, loving God, loving others, I'd say even loving ourselves in a more Christ-like and holy uh, way. And 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 so, yeah, that's the kind of theology I've, I've really devoted my life to, um, bringing in, you know, hundreds of people have come through Lead School Theology, hundreds of people have come through St. Hilde. I hope that that's what they're getting in their experiences with us as as students. Daniel, that's been fantastic. That's given us a really good insight into St. Hilde, the work you do, sort of what brought you to the Diocese of Sheffield. And um, I think we just celebrated that. That's fantastic. I think we're coming towards the end of our time now, but we do throw in some uh, sort of more lighthearted questions now. Um, I think the first one for me would be, it's probably a very lazy question, but when you first came to the UK, what was sort of the biggest culture shock change you noticed sort of living here compared to living in Texas? Um, yeah. It's it, a gear change, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it's, it, there are a lot. I mean, you know, who is it that said these are two nations divided by a Church. common language? And... Um, Divided by yeah, it was Churchill, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I had to learn how uh, many of the words I used meant something different here than they did there, and um, I made every mistake in the book in those first few years. Some really uh, painful and also hilarious ones, which most are probably inappropriate for this podcast, where I said what I thought was normal, and people either laughed at me or just. <laughs> were utterly shocked by what I had said. So kind of relearning the language has been a real culture shock. And I think as well, I mean, I don't know if this is helpful or not, but um, uh, Texas is a warm culture. What that means is low outer walls, high inner walls. You might have 200 friends, but do you really know them very deeply? But, you know, you meet somebody and after 10 minutes, you think, oh, hey, 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 you know, I, I, I know you so well. Here, it's it's a cold culture, high outer walls, low inner walls. It takes a long time to really form friendships here. But when you do finally get over that outer wall, 
the inner wall is very low and like you're in it for life and there's a depth of relationship and sort of commitment to that friendship that I think is really important and refreshing but it was very discouraging at first because I was clearly a foreigner and I was hitting those outer very high outer walls and feeling like I'm not really getting to know people I'm not making friends but I think it was just understanding that the way friendships work in in the two cultures are very very different I'd never thought about it that way. Well, I think that is a very astute observation. I think I'm stereotyping again here. This isn't applicable to everyone in the UK, but we can be quite reticent initially yeah. with how we present ourselves, maybe a bit withdrawn. But again, once you get to know people, then it does open up. I think that is a sort of interesting difference there. Yeah, I remember moving into this house and like I caught the neighbors sort of peeking out between the blinds but you know I think one person brought over some cookies or something you know if you move in in Texas you know the whole street will come and greet you you know it's kind of like hello we're here but actually some of those people have become good friends it just took a lot of time and work to get there which is interesting so uh what's one of the big things that you miss about so assimilating what was one of the things that you still miss about the States? If you're sat there or when you go home, you sit there and you go, I miss this bit. Because I find that when I go to the States, you know, one of my yeah. sons is in America and I come back and I think, well, I've missed it about the UK. There's yeah. not a lot I miss, but there are certain things. What do you miss? Um, Mexican food. <laughs> um, I, I grew up in Mexican food heaven and um, I've struggled to find anything quite like it here in England. I mean, my standards have gone down so far, but um, yes, I love the food in the States. Um, now, it, it probably it wouldn't be good for me if I lived there, but um, yeah, that's something that I really miss. And of course, family. All of our extended family are still there. Um, my mom and sister are in Houston. Um, honestly, apart from those two things, this has become so much home, like we've really worked hard to embrace it. We're super settled, super happy. There's really nothing else drawing us back to the States um, other than Mexican food and family. <laughs> Not quite the same as Mexican food, but um, a good import from the US has been food-wise uh, milk duds. I don't know if you're ever into milk duds. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I only discovered them recently, but they're not sold in every store. I don't know if you've had them before. I have but... no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Do you remember... They're not in stock anymore. These two Mars planets for a time, like chewy, sort of chocolatey. But no. you can get them in certain stores here. It's an American yeah. candy, isn't it? But that's absolutely delicious. I don't know if that's a... <laughs> oh, trust me. America has imported more calories across the world. <laughs> they have contributed more to um, a lack of health across the world than any other single nation. Yeah, that's funny. I know milk debts, of course, from living there, but I hadn't quite realized that they had made their way here. But every once in a while I find something and I'm like, oh, wow, Reese's Pieces. Amazing. I love Reese's Pieces, you know, so. Yeah. One of our standard questions, and I'm hesitant about asking this, is about reading, what you're reading at the moment. Now, I suspect that there is going to be quite a few heavy tomes kicking around the McGuinness household. But <laughs> so both, what are, you, what are you reading at the moment that's really informing your formation around all the other stuff that we spoke about? And perhaps what do you read for pleasure, what, yeah. what do you do? Yeah, for pleasure, I, I'm i always reading a novel uh, of one kind or another. I, I tend to read, you know, a bit every night before bed. I love kind of, um, I don't know if Brandon Sanderson is an, is, an, is an author or a name that either of you know, but he's one of my absolute favorite. He writes kind of um, 
he's a he's a he's one of these world builders and he writes these epic series kind of and and i i really enjoy that um so i'm always reading really to unplug and slow my brain down in the evenings i i read a novel um yeah in terms of more meaty stuff so i'm working right now on um a, a, a Grove booklet, which will be released soon. And so I am doing some kind of reading of a few of my favorite acts, commentators, um, Keener, Witherington, Peterson, just if anybody's interested. I'm also reading uh, a book about leading senior leadership teams or how to lead great senior leadership teams, because one of the learning curves for me in this new role, I mean, I've been a part of a senior leadership team for a long time, but really facilitating a thriving um, senior team is something I hadn't put a lot of thought into. So I'm finding that really helpful. Um, I'm all, I, I have a lot of books on the go, but those are a few that come to mind right now. <laughs> Just finally for me, are there any particular TV shows you're watching, genre films that you're into? Hmm. Um, well, um, I love war films. When my son's here, we watch a lot of historical war films. My wife isn't into those, so when he's gone, it doesn't happen as much. I love sport. Um, I watch sport when I can. Uh, my wife and I right now are watching, um, um, well, uh, they're, Welcome to Wrexham, funnily <laughs> enough. I, I'm loving this show about Wrexham Football Club, and it's just fantastic. We're also watching another um, show on the same streaming channel called Only Murders in the Building. I don't know if that's one that you've come yeah, across. That's, or not. Yeah, I've seen that advertised a lot. I think that's Disney Plus, isn't it? It is, yeah. Say that. yeah. It's really I, funny. Yeah. It's really I've interesting. I've that. Yeah, yeah, worth watching. Yeah. yeah. It's, 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 it sounds really heavy, but actually it's got Steve Martin yes, and right. Martin Short. It's, it's, yeah. it's quite, it's very humorous, but also kind of lots of twists and turns about these funny murder mysteries. So yeah, that kind of thing. But we watch lots of different stuff. There's a Disney advert. I think we need to yeah. send a check through the post. I think, so. I think the other streaming platforms are available. Absolutely. And if they want to contact us, they can. Daniel, it's been fantastic to sit around your kitchen table and chat. I think we could have gone on for a lot longer than we did. So thanks very much for allowing us into your house. Thanks very much for sharing your passion for so much uh, theological stuff. Uh, although there's a little more to come and uh yeah if saint hills does want to carry an advert on the words of grace podcast we'd be very open to that wouldn't we absolutely yeah. definitely yeah. and um, as paul's mentioned before we could do a, a follow-up with yourself and with others um really delving into theology doing some of theology special yeah that's going to come in the new year so daniel Edis, thanks very much for your time fantastic it's been a lot of fun thank you both great and uh, as we always say at the end, words of grace at sheffield.anglican.org. If you want to get in touch with any comments or thoughts, it's great to hear from people. So thanks for doing that. And uh, see you next time. Nice to see you. Man. You too. Take care. Cheers. Bye.